All right. Well, today we're continuing the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us uh, for a while, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. And uh, start with a little story. Years ago, when my daughter uh, was first in her first year of school, uh, I took her to school one day and uh, walked her to the playground. There's this playground in the back of the school. And it was during the first week of school. My wife had taken her the first day, but I was taking her to school for some, other, for some reason during the week. And I remember she looked up at me, and she was very tiny. She was what we call kindergarten, which is uh, about age five or so. And she looked up at me, and she smiled, and she let go of my hand, and she walked off into this playground that was full of all these other kids running around, and, and uh, a lot of them seemed so much bigger than her. And I was hit by this sudden wall of emotion. And in, and in that emotion, it really was this sense of her smallness, her vulnerability, but also just the idea that she was clueless as to what was ahead of her. You know, it just kind of flashed in my mind all the years of school that were going to be ahead of her. And at this point in her life, she had no concept that anyone would really be mean to her or that there'd be times that she felt left out or that she wouldn't be the best at everything. You know, real life. And as a parent, I wanted to shelter her from that real life. You know, because she'd grown up with this idea that, you know, she'd been surrounded by acceptance and love, where she was everyone's princess. And uh, just like most kids go into the world, they have to deal with it for the first time, they think they're everyone's prince or princess. And then reality hits their first bully that they run into. And I think a lot of you who, are, who have kids, you can identify with this, this feeling. But we also know as parents, we have to let them go through this. We have to let them go into the real world at some point. They have to learn that the world can be a difficult place, even though that's going to be a painful lesson. And then over the years as a pastor, you know, you, I've sat with several people that are going through some journey in their life. And oftentimes that journey is a painful process that they're going through. And you do this long enough, you begin to see patterns emerge, like especially in troubled marriages, where you're talking with a married couple and people tend to downplay their issues and they'll say, oh, we just have a few problems. But you're with them long enough, you talk with them long enough, you've experienced this long enough, sometimes you see certain, certain patterns begin to emerge and you just know these folks are in big trouble. They have a huge journey ahead of them if they're going to save this marriage. And that journey is going to be hard. Now, this is not every case, but there are those cases you know, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long journey. It's going to be a long journey of self-reflection for each one of them as individuals. It's going to be a journey of reflection on their relationship. They're going to have to go back to the foundations of how this thing even got started so they can rebuild it in a healthy way. And to be honest with you, most of the time, couples don't want to go through that journey. They short-circuit the process somewhere. And just talking to my brothers here, 80% of the time, at least, it's the men that short-circuit. Because they're like, well, we don't need to do this. The issues aren't as big as, they, as, as my wife seems to think that they are. And just remind you guys, women are much more relational than we are. And if they say there's a problem, there's a problem. And then there are those who are going through grief for whatever reason. I'm not going in the right direction here. Okay, for some reason, I'm going backwards. <laughs> There we go. People who are going through grief for whatever reason. The grief can be a loss uh, due to a death. It can be due to a, a failure. It could be due to a divorce. It could be due to losing their job. 
And these folks, you always are trying to encourage. There's hope on the other side. There's hope on the other side. But they're going to have to sail through these stormy waters to get to that hope on the other side. And some make it through. And some make it through to the point where they can even talk about whatever went on in their life as, as good. They can actually look back on this stormy time, this difficult time in their life, and they'll talk about what they learned from it and the good that came from it. And I always find that kind of amazing because sometimes what people have to go through is pretty tough. But then there are those who, like a sailor that's exhausted from fighting the waves and hanging onto that wheel, they just let it go. And they just drift into that place of despair. They drift into that place of depression. They drift into that place of hopelessness. And I know that many of you have participated in these types of situations where you seek to bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters who are going through these difficult times. You want to carry it along with them. Sometimes when it's your spouse that's going through something like this, you feel so helpless because you, you love this person, you want to help this person, you feel like it's kind of your fault that they're there, which may or may not be true, but you want to fix it, but you can't. And you're on the outside of the situation. It's easier to have perspective when you're on the outside of it. And sometimes when you're on the outside of it, you can see the hope that the, that's on the horizon for this person if they will just hang in there. Sometimes you can see if you, if you just hang in there, you'll get through this crisis. But then there are those times you go through those heartbreaking and frustrating, frustrating times, right? When this person keeps making choices which are damaging to themselves and they just keep going further and further and further into the storm and it's like they're driving themselves you know, intentionally into this storm well as we continue in the gospel of Matthew today we're looking at a very small portion of scripture today but there's a deep lesson in it and it's a passage which picks up after Jesus has come back down from his trip up north uh, to the land of the Gentiles he comes back down to Galilee and, and, and you kind of get the sense that they came down and sort of went back to normal life for a while and then Jesus gathers them together because he's planning to go to Jerusalem and it's his final journey to Jerusalem and he's going to time it with the Passover but before they take to the road Jesus tells them how this journey that they're on is going to end and it says this in Matthew 17 22 through uh, 23 again it's a short section today it says when they came together in Galilee he said to them the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has told his disciples clearly and plainly what is going to happen to them, to him. I mean, after the famous confession of faith where Peter acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, we talked about it some weeks ago, and Peter is told that he is going to be a rock upon which the church is going to be built. Jesus says this. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now look at that passage. It says, Jesus explained this to them means that they, he sat down and explained this carefully. He didn't, it wasn't just a passing comment. Oh, by the way, as we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed by the, the chief priests and teachers of the law. No, he explained it to them. 
And it's after this explanation where Jesus sits down and makes this clear what's going to happen to him. That's when Peter actually stands up and begins to rebuke Jesus. The scripture says, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, rebuke is a strong word. In fact, it's one of these words, in English anyways, that is pretty much only exclusively used within the Christian community. You don't hear people at the board meeting of, of you know, some company say, I rebuke you for your financial report. It's, just not, it's not a word that's outside of the church. It's a very churchy word. But it means to correct, strongly correct. If basically you're telling the person, you are wrong, and this wrong cannot pass. This wrong must be corrected to rebuke someone. So we use it like, I rebuke you, Satan. You hear that in the church a lot. It's the idea that you know, you're rebuking, you're saying what Satan is about is wrong, and that that is going to be corrected in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter, this is what it says Peter does to Jesus. He corrects him strongly. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And then, of course, we know Jesus' response is an equally strong one when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. When after they, uh, Jesus goes through the uh, transfiguration, where his glory is revealed. And, you know, and that's that story of Moses and Elijah are there. And, and as they come down the mountain, it says this, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders to tell anyone, not to tell anyone, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And this is an interesting little verse. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So we can see that they, just, they didn't quite get it. And, and what seems super you know, clear to us, they don't get. And so as we look at this passage today, look at what it says. As they came to Galilee, he said, And the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So there's a consistent part in all these passages that the disciples seem to be overlooking. Peter overlooks it when he rebukes Jesus. In the transfiguration, the disciples discuss, discuss it, the disciples discuss it, but they don't dig deeper into it with Jesus. And in this passage, it's overlooked, and the disciples go right to being filled with grief. And what's this part that's being overlooked? It's talked about again and again and again in all these passages. It's in every single one. It's this part. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. They just don't seem to see it. Now you might say, well, the disciples, they, they, they did hear this part of the message. They just didn't want Jesus to go through the pain and the suffering. But when you look at how the disciples reacted to the crucifixion, that's not the case. They saw his death as being the end, the end of everything that they'd been hoping for. It was the end. In fact, the disciple Thomas is so over it. He's so distraught by the whole thing that even when the other disciples who had seen the risen Savior come to Thomas and say, he's alive, we've seen him. Thomas's famous reaction is, I'm not going to believe it until I can place my hands into his wounds. In other words, Thomas is like, he doesn't believe the other disciples at this point. He goes, you guys, we, all hope is lost, and you guys are delusional. Or you're lying, I'm not going to believe it until I can touch those wounds myself. So I think it's fairly fair to, I think it's fair to say that this notion that on the third day he will rise up to life, this, this was something the disciples 
didn't get. It was completely lost on them. And why would that be? Jesus tried to explain this. He said it to them, he said it to them multiple times. Why couldn't they get it? Well, I think the answer is fairly simple. And the answer is, I believe, their experience and the experience of all humanity in regards to death is that there is no coming back from the dead. You know, it's a one-way trip. Now, in the chronology of the scripture, Lazarus has not been raised from the dead at this point. But they had seen a little girl get raised by Jesus from the dead. But it didn't seem to register to them that Jesus himself once killed, would come back from the dead. Maybe they thought, you know, he has the power to raise people, but who has the power to raise him? And that's a good question. Who does have the power to raise Christ? Jesus never portrays himself as a victim of death. He doesn't want to go through the whole resurrect, I mean the whole crucifixion, because it is going to be painful. I think there's something to him becoming sin for us. But is Jesus a victim of death? Jesus never portrays himself as a victim of death. In fact, he says this in John. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is not a victim. His crucifixion is not the result of him being victimized. He lays down his life. And he has the authority to raise it back up again. Authority given to him by the Father. But the disciples don't get this. Why not? Well, I think the problem is the disciples really can't see past the storm. They're in the midst of the storm of their life. And Jesus is describing something that they can't get their heads around. And when they find themselves in the middle of this event actually taking place where Jesus is being persecuted, when Jesus is being crucified, on trial, when Jesus is being crucified, they can't see past it. They're so caught up in the hurricane of disaster that they can't see that simple phrase that Jesus would always end this warning with that on the third day, I'll be raised to life. They just miss that part completely. Because death and those things that, that feel like death to us, that haunts us. Death is something that has haunted humanity from the beginning. You know, you look at, look at the, the monuments around. Pharaohs tried to cheat death by being mummified and, and being buried with, with treasures and gold and even food. The oldest recipe for beer was found in an Egyptian tomb. For those of you who are, are, are the, the connoisseurs of, of beer, you can look up the recipe even online and make it yourself. And servants were buried with the pharaohs. And they're not the only ones. You know, Chinese emperors buried, were buried with goods and servants. That, that whole terracotta army thing that you've probably seen, there's this huge, huge tomb of this Chinese emperor. And he had these soldiers made to fight the battles for him in the afterlife. Vikings used to be buried, buried in their longships, ready to go on that long journey together with their other companions and the goods and whatever was needed. 
Meanwhile, the rest of humanity, that 99% who is the unheralded and unknown, they just slipped into that long dark without anyone knowing and their stories of, and their histories just kind of ending. And this is what death has been for human beings. And the disciples, when they hear that Jesus is going to die, they just can't see past the despair. But Jesus can see past the storm. And this is what he's trying to get the disciples to understand, that, he, that this is going to be a terrible time that they go through, but there's an there's a other side to this thing. He can see past it. And because Jesus can see past the storm, he can go through that ordeal, an ordeal that he does not want to go through. The scripture tells us that he prayed for another way. He sweat drops of blood. It was no simple thing to go and to be tried and to be beaten and to be tortured and then to be crucified. But he knew on the third day he would rise again, and by knowing that there was a way past the storm, he had courage. He had the courage to endure this, to willingly enter into it, to lay down his own life, not as a victim, but willingly entering into this for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, for the sake of all who would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, he was entering into something that we can't even get our heads around. It was more than just the physical pain. It's the spiritual pain. What does it mean for the very word of God made flesh to become sin for us? I mean, Jesus even seems to kind of almost go through a bit of an identity crisis where he's, he's feeling cut off from himself. It's something we can't even get our heads around. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So Jesus, who knew no sin, who had committed no sin, becomes our sin. All of us, throughout history. And we're not talking about just the sins like shoplifting and telling a few lies. We're talking about the horrible, horrible things that we can't even say out loud in church. Those things that are done in the deep darkness of the human soul to other people. Things done to children. He becomes responsible for all of it. It's no wonder he sweat drops of blood. Who would want to have that on their shoulders? He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes that burden so it's no longer ours to carry. And he suffers for it. But what does this mean to us then? Well, it could mean a lot of things. I mean, in the ultimate sense, just as Christ rose from the dead to new life, we too will rise to new life. Those of us who have put our faith in Christ. Next week, we're going to be having some baptisms. Those who want to be involved in being baptized as a believer, we're going to be doing that next week. But one reason why I personally... And I know that not everyone comes from this background, but one reason why I personally believe that baptism should be done by someone who has a conscious faith in Christ is because there's a deep understanding in the process of baptism which links us to the life of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And understand when he says we too may live a new life, he's talking about that new life is, begins on this life, in this time, not just in the great by and by. We begin to live our eternal life empowered by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ now. We have been united with him in his death. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, I was baptized as an infant by my parents. And then as I became a conscious believer, I was baptized as a believer. And I can tell you from experience, it's much easier to own these words, own the truth in this, if you can remember that you participated in this. When you make a conscious decision of saying, I am going to be crucified with Christ and no longer live. I give my life to God. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being able to own these words by consciously participating in this has been invaluable to me. And that's why I would encourage it for you if you've not been baptized as a believer. Because it reminds me that whatever happens in this life, whatever trials are suffered, whatever disappointments I might feel, whatever storms I might find myself in, in addition to all the blessings and joys and all the things that are good in life, I am destined for greater things. And so are you if you're in Christ. Your destiny is not just tied to this experience of being born, of living, and of dying. There's more to this life than just living and dying. There's more to this life than just being stuck in a storm and feeling victimized by life. There's more to it. And that more is going to be found in Jesus Christ. And if you've made the same commitment, then you are destined for greater things. Not just because of who you are, but because of who Christ is and what for, because of what Christ has done. And as Jesus understood himself and understood himself well enough to know that I'm going to go through this terribly difficult time. And he's even going to ask the disciples to watch with him, but they'll fail. He still knows that he will rise again. And we should have that same courage. When we go through those difficult times, and we all go through them, if you're married, you go through difficult... Every marriage goes through some difficult times. And if you have kids, there are times that the kids can be difficult. And there's times, really, that your, your heart breaks for the kids, right? Because they're going through some things that you just... You know what they're going through, because you, you went through it too. But they don't believe you, because you're the parent. And so you just kind of have to sit there and suffer with them. It's tough. And it doesn't get any better. I know a lot of you have younger kids. My kids are in their 20s now. You still worry about them. I'm worried about when my kids get married. How is their marriage going to be? Are they going to have a, a marriage that is fruitful and joyful? Is it going to be painful and, and just a train wreck? As a parent, you never stop worrying about them. But with our faith in Christ, we know that whatever happens, even if the worst in our minds happens, that in the end, we're destined for greater things. And if we keep our eyes on Christ, we can get through these storms. Keeping our eyes on Christ often parts those clouds because we start to make decisions that are more Christ-like. 
We start to have a faith and a trust that reflects Christ. We stop being so selfish. A lot of the pain in our lives comes from selfishness, especially in relationships. And if we start acting more like Christ, we start pouring out our trust in Christ, get our eyes off ourselves, get our eyes upon him, the storm will miraculously begin to part and we can go through it. And even if something happens, like we have folks, we have folks in our church whose family members, close family members are in the ICU or suffering from COVID. They're, they're, they're far away from home. Their hearts are breaking. Even in this time, whatever happens, if they are in Christ, we know that this, is not, this life is not the only life that we have to look forward to. But it's hard. It's painful. But never forget this. Remember who you are. That last song that, that we sang before the, the prayer time was that, I, that place that we have this identity in Christ. We oftentimes forget who we are. And the truth is you are a child of the living God. The living God. You're not the child of a philosophical God. You're not the child of a book. You're not the child of a historical event which took place but no longer really has relevance to your life today. You are a child of the living resurrected God whose spirit dwells within all people who are truly giving themselves over to following Jesus Christ and so when you see that suffering or you see that death of a relationship or a dream or even the real thing that is death all these things that bring you into those cold dark places in your life remember that you're loved by God and you are a child of God and just like I had to let go of my daughter's hand and watch her walk into the playground knowing full well that she's going to experience some things which are not going to be terribly pleasant for her in her young life as she goes into that schoolyard. I know that she has to go through that to develop and grow as a person. And there are some things that God actually engineers into our life which seems very painful to us. A lot of times it's in the area of our career choices or how our careers are going. When we make that our idol, God will say, I'm going to make you trust in me instead of your bank account. That can be extremely painful to go through. But if you trust him, I have yet to see someone get so abandoned that they just went into wreck and ruin. I've never seen that. As a pastor, I've seen lots of guys, lots of women lose jobs and have to rearrange their whole life I've never seen one just go completely down and crash and burn. Everyone I've seen, they get picked up into a different place in life. And they look back on it and they say, that loss was one of the best things that happened to me. And if you're in the middle of that right now, you may be thinking, you're crazy. But in about a year, we can talk again. And we'll see how you feel. You're the child of the living God. And the living God wants you to grow and to know him. And it's tough sometimes. I took my children through a difficult thing. I ripped them up from the only home they had ever known. Took them out of the only town they had ever known. Took them away from the only culture they had ever known. And plonked them in the middle of the German school system. They didn't go to ISD. My kids didn't. We couldn't afford to go to the international school. They went to German school. It was the hardest thing that they had ever done. It wasn't just learning a language. It was 
all their friends, all the things that they grew up with culturally, was gone, stripped from them overnight. Thanks, Dad. But you know, they learned some deep, deep lessons of life. And one of the things that I can tell them without any exaggeration, you've already done probably the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life. To have your whole life just turned up, stripped away, plonked into another culture and say, go for it. Another language. Everything. They didn't know language. They didn't know word one of German. You know, my daughter finished gymnasium. She just finished her bachelor's in Germany. Kid got, my son got through school. He went back to the U.S. That's all right. He still has German. He has a wider worldview. He, they got to participate in this church that is, you know, multicultural to the extreme. Learn to appreciate people from all over the world who have that common bond in Christ. And sometimes that's the only thing we have at IBCD. And we say this often at IBCD, we don't have much in common, really. We have one thing in common, our bond in Christ. If we keep our eyes on our bond in Christ and choose not to be offended by each other, because there's all kinds of cultural things we do that could be offensive. Across, you know, I always tell folks, I have to be very careful with what I do with women. Some women want a hug, some women want a handshake, and if I mix up which culture wants what, I can cause a lot of offense. The one who wants a hug, I give a handshake. She's like, well, that's cold. The one that, you know, a hug means I've, I've like crossed some huge line. You know, then they're like, this guy's a freak. You know, but if we choose not to be offended and we keep our eyes on Christ, we'll stay unified. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about IBCD. But you have also, each one of you have gone through difficult times. And I imagine almost every one of you can give a testimony of saying, I went through this time that was an incredible storm. And it looked like, really, my life was going nowhere. But God got me through it. And those testimonies are testimonies of strength because it not only will help change lives around you who hear your story, but it changed your life. So remember that life will try and beat you down, but also remember this, on the third day, Christ rose from the dead. And you are part of that risen life now. And you live it now and forever. And if you remember that, then no storm will sink you, no darkness will blind you, no heartbreak will end you. You are in Christ. Christ is in the Father. The Father is eternal. This is who you are. So see through that storm and trust in your risen Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and thank you for the fact that you see through the storm. You not only saw through your own storm, but you see through the storms of our life too. And Lord, at times when we're in the middle of it, we feel very alone. But may we be reminded, as uh, you were asleep in the boat and the disciples felt like they had to wake you up, you were asleep because you weren't worried about that storm. They were, but you weren't. And just as you calm that storm, you're still in control of the storms of our life. And sometimes when we feel you're asleep or you're not as concerned as we would like you to be, a lot of times it's because you already know that this isn't really that big a deal, but it's a big deal to us. And we thank you that you're a responsive God to us. We thank you that you understand that even though in our brains we're children of eternity, it's sometimes hard for us to, to get that. 
And we pray so desperately for someone to go through a physical healing, only to know that they will eventually die down the road. Everyone does. But you heal because why? It's important to us. This storm that you knew the disciples were going through in the boat, you were asleep, but you woke up and you calmed the storm. Why? It was important, important to them. And you care, and we thank you for that. It seems, Lord, no matter how much we try, it's, it's hard for us to see into the way that you saw the world and continue to see the world because we are blinded by sin, and we are well, this is the only life that we have experienced so far. It's hard for us to get our heads around there's more, but we trust you that there is. And so, Lord, we pray for everyone who's in the midst of a storm right now. Maybe it's a storm of a relationship that's struggling. Maybe it's a storm of a disappointment in career or finances. Maybe it's a struggle in the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the storm of the fear of an anticipated death of someone. But wherever the storm is that people are in, Father, we pray that you would help them through their understanding of who they are in Christ. Trust you to see them through. And that they would not despair in the midst of it, but that they could see that there are shores that are lit by the hope of God just on the other side. And for those who aren't believers who might be here today, who are still in this place of struggling because the idea of the, the storms of life are just part of human nature. It's not that as Christians we don't struggle with them, but we have the hope in you. For those who aren't believers, Father, we pray that your spirit be whispering to them now, telling them, this is for you too. You can have this if you trust me. So we thank you for this. God, we pray you continue to guide us in our worship as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.